In the fairy tales, happily ever after is what happens after the wedding. Uh, The princess meets her prince, there's a true love's kiss, and they live happily ever after. We're told this story as children, but at the same time, most of us are raised in families where there are highs, but also many lows. It doesn't always seem like happily ever after. As we grow up, often the stories seem to have more weight than reality. Many have an idealised understanding of love and relationships. If we only find the one then we'll also have our happily ever after. But then most of us, as we grow older, whether we enter into marriage or not, for most of us, we realise happily ever after might be nice for the movies, but it's not quite what real life looks like. Over the last few weeks in 1 Peter, we've been hearing about this kind of tension. Not the tension between stories and reality, but between the now and the not yet. Right now, if you're trusting in Jesus, you're one of God's new people. And we're to live out this reality, even when we live in the old order of things. We live in the tension of the now. Everything Jesus has achieved for us through his death, resurrection and ascension and the not yet. We're not yet in the new heavens and earth, the fullness of what is to come. And we heard last week, it's not despite Jesus being Lord, but because Jesus is Lord, Christians are to submit to emperors and government and masters, anyone in a position of authority over us. And we're to do this even if they persecute believers for no good reason. Uh, to quote Stephen McAlpine again, if we're going to be accused of being the bad guys, because of Jesus, we're to be the best bad guys around, doing good, living faithfully for Jesus, no matter what accusations might be thrown. And the reason for this? Well, it's not only because we're to live righteously before God, no matter what, but also in God's kindness, living for Jesus is attractive. And some people will see our good deeds and be saved by Jesus. Uh, Peter applies this principle to three areas of life. Uh, Last week we heard about the first two, government and masters. Today it's marriage. Uh, Now, if you're single and you heard uh, the passage as Margaret just read it to us, you might be wondering, look, what have I come to church for today? What's this passage going to say to me? Is this going to be completely irrelevant? Uh, Well, I hope not, Uh, because Peter is applying the gospel of Jesus to this particular situation. So there's principles and ideas in this passage that apply whether we are single or married. We're going to see that because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that's the basis as we live in this now but not yet tension. As you heard the passage reads, uh, it might have caused some concern for us if you are or have been married. Marriage for you may have been a great source of joy, may currently be a great source of joy, but also significant grief. And it's our prayer that God will minister to you by his word today, comforting 
uh, maybe even convicting us about these things. Now, last week when we were in chapter 2, we noticed that Peter didn't say anything about what a Christian king might do or what a Christian slave owner might do. I take this uh, is because there weren't many emperors or slave owners in the churches he was writing to. But today, as he gets into marriage, we hear God's word to both husbands and wives. And he starts off with wives. And although these verses speak generally about marriage, there's a particular focus, a particular focus for women whose husbands aren't believers. Have a listen from verse 1. So this is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word... They may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, when he says those who don't believe the word, he's talking about non-Christians, husbands who aren't trusting in Jesus, who aren't converted. Now, why is he talking about that particular situation and not marriage in general, as we have, say, at the end of Ephesians and the end of Colossians? I think part of it is those words at the start where he says, in the same way. There's a parallel here with what we heard last week. In chapter 2, the question is, how do Christians live in a world where pagan emperors have authority? If you're an enslaved person, how do you respond to a master who treats you badly simply because you own the name of Jesus? And so, as he addresses marriage, he's following the same pattern. He's not discussing Christian marriages, but marriages where the husband doesn't live for Jesus. And I reckon this was probably a common situation back then. Uh, These people were likely first-generation Christians. They've grown up worshipping all sorts of gods. Some grew up Jewish, so worshipping Yahweh. Others were pagans. They've gotten married, had children, and then they hear the gospel and God graciously saves them. Sometimes he saves both husband and wife, other times only one. It seems this is what was going on. And so you can imagine these Christian women wondering, how do I live for Jesus? How do I live for Jesus when my husband doesn't encourage me in prayer? We don't read the Bible together. In fact, sometimes he might expect his whole family to go along with pagan values and participate in pagan rituals. How do you live for Jesus in that situation? Well, we heard in verse 1, to be godly. And the word that's used is submit. And the question is, what does submitting look like in marriage? Well, he actually goes on to explain in the following verses. But before we get there, we've got to see what the goal is. What's the purpose behind everything Peter says? Well, verse 1 says, the goal is conversion. The goal is the glory of God. The goal is the husband might see his wife's godliness, find that attractive and come to trust in Jesus. It's actually just like we heard in chapter 2. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's the same aim here in chapter 3, same goal. But there's no promise There's no promise that the husband will be saved. And I know this is heartbreaking for many spouses to hear. I know some of us are married to unbelievers and it breaks your heart. 
I'm sure it was the same with the people who first read this letter. Uh, There's no promise, but there is hope. Hope that God may use godly lives for salvation. But also back to back in verse 1, he says without a word. It doesn't mean the Christian is never to speak about Jesus. In fact, later in chapter 3, all believers, men and women, all believers are called to speak about the hope we have in Jesus. But the point here is once again fitting with chapter 2 verse 12. Good lives make the gospel attractive. God uses our words and actions to save people. Beautiful lives show the gospel is beautiful. Have a listen from verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. God loves beauty. Uh, The Bible is very positive about physical beauty. We're told Joseph and King David were handsome. In the Song of Songs, both the man and the woman delight in each other's physical beauty. Uh, The metaphor of a bride adorned with jewellery and a beautiful dress uh, is used as a picture of Christ and the church. You don't speak like that if God is anti-beauty. No, God is beautiful in himself. He puts beauty into creation. The Bible celebrates beauty. But it celebrates even more beauty of character, beauty that isn't skin deep. As it says, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this is where submitting is being spelt out. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her own husband? It's living with a gentle and quiet spirit. Uh, I remember at uni, some of my female friends at church, they found this sentence really hard. I'm not quiet, I'm not gentle, I have opinions. I like singing, the outdoors, being loud. Does this mean I've got to stop expressing myself to follow Jesus? And maybe you've heard those words and you're feeling a little bit anxious. Maybe you're feeling something similar. In the Bible, gentle and quiet are not feminine virtues. I'll say that again. Gentle and quiet are not feminine virtues. They're Christian virtues. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. It's the same word. Jesus called himself gentle and lowly. Gentleness is a fruit of the spirit. The same goes with quietness. The goal for all Christians is to live a quiet life. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Timothy 2, if you want to look it up for yourself. These aren't feminine virtues. They're Christian virtues. But what are they? What is this gentleness and quiet? Well, gentleness, we heard you hear in those beatitudes of Jesus, it's meekness, it's humility. Not pushing for your own rights, but caring about others. Uh, quietness, sometimes in the Bible that word is used literally, meaning not speaking, but it's actually more about uh, being a calming presence, not stirring the pot or inflaming the situation. 
Now, these virtues are Christian virtues, so they're not incompatible with intelligence or initiative, being fun or having opinions, but it's about living a life in a way that brings God's peace and serving others rather than ourselves, submitting ourselves to the good of others, which, of course, fits with what we heard about Jesus at the end of chapter 2. Have a look there. I'm going to read it from chapter 2, starting at verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, that he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus lived out gentleness and quiet. He didn't fight back. If you read the gospel accounts, while everyone else is frantic in those final hours of Jesus' life as he goes to the cross, the disciples are panicking, the religious leaders are anxious, the crowd has lost its mind, but Jesus calmly entrusts himself to God. This is the beauty God calls Christian wives to. This is how Peter describes submission in marriage. Imagine the Christian wife with an unbelieving husband in the first century. There's a particular vulnerability there. But when she entrusts herself to God, living first before him and attending to what God asks of her, that enables her to find strength in Christ and to live out gentleness and quiet in what may have been a chaotic marriage. It's not only Jesus who's an example here, Peter also goes back to the mother of faith. He goes to Sarah right back in the book of Genesis as an example of someone who trusted God and submitted to her husband. So this is verse 5. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Uh, When you first read this, it sounds fair enough. A few times in Genesis, we're told Sarah was physically attractive, yet it's her character that shines. Though, she's actually a bit of a strange choice. Uh, Genesis never says Sarah submitted to or obeyed Abraham. The word's never used. And the one time she calls Abraham Lord, it's in Genesis 18. In the context, it's it's not exactly a high point for Sarah. In fact, she's rebuked in the next verse. Now that the Bible tells us these things, the highs and the lows, it's good news, isn't it? Because the Bible isn't about heroes, people who are perfect. It's about God who is gracious to sinful people. Sarah is an example because she's not perfect, yet God is gracious. Though I think Peter mentions her because as you read the story of the life of Abraham and Sarah, you pick up the tone of their relationship. Now, neither of them are perfect by any stretch. Their faith is mixed with fear, and so their obedience is mixed with failure. But overall, 
Sarah followed Abraham when God called him to leave home and go to the land he'd promised. And maybe in this context of talking to Christian women with unbelieving husbands, I wonder if whether it's meant to bring to mind not the times when Abraham trusted God, but when he distrusted God and even put his wife Sarah in harm's way. And yet even in those times, she entrusted herself to God. And the way those events are relayed to us in the book of Genesis you notice that Sarah isn't guilty of anything. The blame is fully laid at Abraham's feet. It is his sin. It's not Sarah's sin to entrust herself to God. So what does it mean to be Sarah's child today? Well, for all women, don't worry, blokes, we're going to get to the men in a moment, God calls you to value character over clothing. True beauty is trusting in God. This is an idea for everyone. I reckon we need to be careful how we compliment young women. In our culture, we tend to compliment girls on their dress or the bow in their hair. We don't seem to do the same thing for little boys. From an early age, what does this teach? It says outward adornment is the most important thing. Outward adornment is more important than character. Uh, Brothers and sisters, if we want to disciple young women in our church to live for Jesus, we need to change. Keep complimenting, loads of compliments and encouragement for selflessness, courage, humility, peacefulness. Look, if you want to comment on a nice dress, make it rare. Focus on what God values. And I reckon this principle works in our marriages too. Husbands, encourage and compliment your wife for her character. Of course you can praise her physical beauty, but even more, true beauty. And we need to keep encouraging the wives in our church, especially those whose husbands don't believe, to keep trusting God, to live for Jesus all the time, especially at home. Uh, to be gentle and quiet, to be an influence for calm, an example of selfless love in the marriage. This is a great opportunity to put Titus 2 into action. Older women teaching younger women. I'm sure many of the younger women in our church would would love to have a godly older woman spend time with them, uh, talking and sharing about how to live for Jesus in everyday life. All right, that's the wives. Peter now moves on to the husbands. And he shows the gospel is the great equaliser. He calls husbands to respect their wives. Verse 7, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Uh, There's two things Peter says here, consideration, respect, or more literally, knowing and honouring. The word consider, it sounds like being someone who doesn't butt in, not pushing into a line. Literally, look, be considerate, nothing wrong with that. Literally, though, it says, live with your wife according to knowledge. God calls husbands to know their wife, to understand her, to consider who she is. Many men love learning new things, don't we? 
whether it's at work or whether it's a hobby, learning some new piece of equipment, a toy or a tool, or maybe you're someone who loves digging into history, whatever it is, uh, I'm sure many blokes love to learn new things. If you're a husband, God's given you a lifelong project. Know your wife. Become an expert on her. And how do you do this? Well, it is a lifelong project, isn't it? It takes time and listening. And guess what? I'm speaking to myself here probably mainly. You can't listen while you're looking at a screen. It just doesn't work. When the eyes are working, the ears aren't. At least that's true for me. Husbands, know your wife. And respect her too. Aretha Franklin wasn't the first to talk about respect. God says husbands are to respect their wives and therefore, I take it, men respect women in general. But it's more than respect. The word actually means honour. It's the same word we read in chapter 2, verse 17, where we're told to honour the emperor. Did you hear that? Put yourself in a first century Roman Empire mindset. God commands husbands to honour their wife, give her the same kind of respect the emperor receives. And you notice there's a context for this. It's the context of being the weaker vessel. What's the weakness he's referring to? I think the word weak is deliberately chosen because it's quite broad. In general, most women are physically less strong than men. Though I've got a mate whose wife uh, was a definitely Commonwealth and I think Olympic level weightlifter, it's not true in that marriage. But in general it is, and there's a vulnerability, vulnerability that comes with that. Also in society and culture, especially in the first century, but even now, women generally don't have strong positions in society and culture. Peter's acknowledging here the Bible says something our culture is coming to grips with again, that there is a vulnerability that many women experience. And it continues to be highlighted with the discussion around domestic abuse and violence towards women in Aussie culture. We keep hearing the stories. We haven't heard what Peter says. It's interesting, what's our culture say is the answer? Well, men, we need to change how we think about women. We need to raise our boys to treat women better. Guess what? The Bible knew that first, didn't it? That's the Bible's answer too. We are called to honour and respect. But the Bible actually goes much deeper. It has a, a firmer foundation than just asserting that we should and putting white ribbons on people. The first basis we're told... The reason to do this, to respect and honour, for husbands to honour their wives, is because men and women are co-heirs of life. Men and women have a profound equality before God. Uh, That word co-heirs is interesting. In most cultures in the ancient world, men got the first dibs on inheritances. So the firstborn son got most, if not everything, in the inheritance. Daughters were at the back of the queue if they were even in the queue at all. 
But God says the most precious inheritance of all, eternal life with him, men and women are equal sharers, co-heirs together. Why respect women? Why honour your wife? Because dishonouring her is denying the gospel. Dishonouring her denies the gospel because we are co-heirs of eternal life. Which is why in our church, as in any church that believes the gospel, there is no tolerance for abuse or violence against women. 1 Peter 3 speaks against domestic abuse. Some people claim that the call to submit that we heard in verse 1 is actually a call for a wife to stay in dangerous situations. That's not what the Bible says. We heard the context, didn't we? Verses 1 to 6 are about how to live with an unbelieving husband, a husband who's not a Christian. It it says nothing about abuse. That's not the situation Peter's addressing. The closest in these in this passage that Peter gets to touching on abuse is verse 7, where the vulnerability of the wife is raised, and it's crystal clear, husband, honour your wife. Treat her with dignity and respect. Listen to her, that you might know her and honour her more. That's the first reason, the gospel reason. The second reason is a very severe warning. If you don't, God won't listen to you. Do you feel the weight of this? If you fail to honour your wife, God will block his ears to you. You will face his discipline. Now that's God's words to husbands. But a word to you if you are facing a dangerous, abusive situation. Now please get help. Go to the police, speak to someone you trust, a a Christian friend, uh, one of our elders or an elder's wife. Uh, We will listen and care because you are precious to God and worthy of honour and respect. Uh, And if you want to think about this more, on the welcome table there's a few copies of a report on domestic violence from our denomination. It's only short, I think, five or six pages, so it's really only the start uh, of, of understanding this, but, uh, I'm sorry, understanding it and maybe how, how you can help when someone does talk to you about this, but it is a start and it's got uh, some references on some further reading uh, in there. Now we've raised this very big and emotional and difficult topic. Once again, this passage isn't actually directly about that situation, though verse 7 does make us start to think about, doesn't it, with the, the vulnerability and honouring. Uh, this passage is about how to live for Jesus in the reality of marriage, not the happily ever after of fairy tales, but the real world, the now, but the not yet. And in this, as in all of life, Jesus gives us what we need to live for him in the not yet. Jesus entrusted himself to God He calls us to do the same. Jesus is gentle. His presence brings peace and calm amongst chaos. And he calls us to do the same. And Jesus honours men and women, uniting them to himself so that we may share in his inheritance of life. We live in this now, but not yet. Life is not ideal. 
Marriage is not as simple as happily ever after, but God calls us to trust him, to live for him, adorning ourselves with true beauty and honouring those who are weaker. Let's pray. Father God, please continue to change and shape us by the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for this example of gentleness and quiet, of honouring women. We praise you that in the gospel, men and women share equally in your eternal inheritance. We pray for those in our church family who are married. Help those who are wives to excel in gentleness and quiet. Help husbands to grow in knowing their wives and honouring them. May they do this, living wholeheartedly for Jesus, trusting in him. We pray for those whose spouse is not trusting in Jesus. Please help them live in a way that makes the gospel attractive. And we ask, we beg, you'd you'd be pleased to use their words and life to save this spouse. We pray for those who are single. Help them live radically for Jesus to find faith, hope and love in him. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.